0: Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie. Welcome to episode 32 of the MagCulture podcast. As always, I'm here at the MagCulture HQ in London, ready to dig into the culture of magazines with a couple of guests. For this episode, Loaded founder James Brown joins us here live, and later we'll hear from Francesca Gavin in Vienna via Zoom. She's just launched a hefty new title, Epoch. As summer passes, we're in a slight limbo period at the shop, the calm before the storm. The next few weeks, we'll see many new arrivals on our shelves as the biannuals flood us alongside fashion week and the rush towards Christmas begins. This is also the time of year we'd usually be launching the London edition of Mag Culture Live. Sadly, we've had to cancel that this year for a number of reasons too boring to share here, but having kept it going through the lockdowns, it's really frustrating to drop this edition. But rest assured, Mag Culture Live will be back in 2023. Instead, we'll be restarting our events here at the MagCulture shop, so watch out on the journal and Insta for news of these. And so to our first guest. After a stint in the music press, James Brown launched Loaded magazine in 1994 and was in charge of it, editing it for three years. Last week, he published a book about this period of his life. That book, Animal House, tells the story of Loaded and his subsequent move to British GQ. So a big welcome, James. Hi, Thanks I, for having me. No pleasure. Thanks for coming along. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, I'm enjoying being in your shop. You've been
0: looking through some of the, some of the magazines, I've yes. I've got
1: twice as many as you wanted me to get. Yeah, out. you've got
0: far too many. You've been
1: greedy. <laughs> but the thing is, when I was a kid, when I, I first did fanzines, and I would go into a record shop in York or Nottingham or, or, or Rough Trade in London, and I would emerge with a similar pile <laughs> of fanzines. Yeah, yeah. I was obsessed with them. So it's a little bit like for me coming in here is a little bit like that and yeah, so i got this massive
0: so, pile. Well, wait, wait, where do you want to start? I mean, we well, probably can't we'll do fire, them all. So. We'll
1: fire through some of them because I just yeah. thought I'd give them a name check. Yeah. And then there's some others that I'd actually quite look through. I picked up Whalebone because I think I actually got in touch with you guys and said, can you get this? You did, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, this is a good example of how magazines work nowadays in that I followed this on Instagram and I had no idea really what it is. And even now I think maybe it's a a New York or Montauk-based creative agency uh, and they have a good account and um I didn't really know what was coming and it was a really good magazine it's the whalebone comedy issue and what I find is it's rare you get a magazine where you're getting 70 or 80% really good content mm-hmm. you you might even a top high flying great magazines of the world often run at 65 70 this magazine almost every page has got something brilliant on it it's funny it's original They've done things really differently. It's really visual. Uh, it's not word heavy and it's, I just, yeah, I found it really inspiring.
0: I was very happy to hear about it from you. and we've had it, it hasn't sold that well, but I don't think it's that well known over here. So maybe this will boost yeah. it a bit and get the word out.
1: I get the impression Whalebone, the magazine, isn't their main thing. I yeah. think maybe they've got a shop in New York. or So I don't know if it's a magazine that comes out of a fashion shop or what it is, but it's... It's well worth coming in here and getting. It was, it, I thought it was fantastic. Cool. Okay, I've got Batshit Times, <laughs> which I just picked up because I thought it was a great name. And just had a flick through there. I would have bought that. And then maybe gone home and thought, what the fuck have I got here? Yeah. <laughs> but that, that was a great name.
0: You can find out more about that on the on the website. I mean, that's, that's an American almost sort of art protest magazine.
1: But, yeah, I just like the cover. Backseat yeah. Times, Fall of Rome. It looks, <laughs> it looks different. What I like about the um, magazine sector that kind of you guys sit at the heart is nobody cares about what the covers, how commercial they are, because you're selling ideas, essentially, and, and, and environments and... So it's nice to see a magazine that's not covered in cover lines. The next one is Electronic Sound, which is run by some guys who I think were on Melody Maker and. And maybe
0: Sounds? No. Some of those magazines. Yeah, yeah, they were kind but,
1: of on the, the, the end of, 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 the, of the kind of rock press. And then they mm-hmm. went into some of the uh, music. I think, I think the guys were on. And, and I've, bought, I've actually bought this a few times because, you know, when I was 15, there was like a tremendous amount of brilliant electronic pop. And,
0: and a lot of a lot of it is kind of retro. I mean, the, the, the issue you've got there is yeah. looking back, well, Royxop Roy is still around, but it's very much an overview of their career.
1: Yeah, the, the other one that you've got on the shelves is is about Stephen Malander from yeah, Cambrai Voltaire. Cabs, but yeah. When I was growing up in, in Yorkshire, there were a lot of electronic bands in, in Sheffield, like the Box and more famous ones like the Heaven 17 and Human League. There was the Cassandra Complex in Leeds. Depeche Mode I saw in a tiny wine bar, which I mention in my book. I mean, really tiny, tiny bar in Leeds. And then again, a few months later, in a, bit, in a bigger bar, the Warehouse. It was, you know, the early days of electro-pop in, in the late 90s, coming out of punk, OMD, obviously, the Passaged mm-hmm. Wits. Uh, it was a good time, you know. It was before the bland mainstream acts got hold of computers. It was just the kind of the... Yeah, it was the, quite revolutionary. It was the punks yeah, yeah. who were influenced by Kraftwerk rather than the Stooges. That's really where it had come from. So that's why, and, and, I ever... and that's
0: a really interesting magazine because, as you say, it has, it is born of the sort of traditional mu- music press. Yeah, and it's quite a traditional kind of model, but it does really well. It's 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 coming out monthly and it sells. They distribute little uh, vinyl. Singles with it,
1: but also what I noticed about electronic sound was when I went to buy one of the early issues, you could just buy one issue, mm-hmm. which is good because if you if you're paying nine pounds or it's seven six ninety nine but you add the postage on, some people don't want to go and and do in, in my day people sold subscriptions for for twelve months mm-hmm. and then it would you'd hope that they didn't kill the direct debit, but the the idea of just being able to pop on and, and buy mm-hmm. with your Apple Pay or whatever one issues is a good thing. So, so I got that, just to say that. I thought it was a good specialist music mag. Sight and sound I picked up. It's got a great shot of Bowie from the Heroes era. Just a big, strong logo. And, you know, I said to you, is that sight and sound of, mm-hmm. the BFI mag? Because it looks so much more confident. It looks great. It looks really brilliant. I'm going to enjoy going through that because I'm a big film fan.
0: And then there's a big new Bowie movie, isn't there? I'm not sure if that relates. Yes, it is. The Moon Daydream.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this this will be all about it and it's that looks really good. You know I mean I'm sure you do this as well. I always look straight to see who's working on yeah, it. Who's done it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. uh and usually I still occasionally see people from you know 10 years ago who were involved but that looks good. Pitch I picked up. It's got a monocle, multi image cover and then above the logo uh a kind of decker of headlines.
0: It's the first issue. It's a sports magazine, but it's it's multiple sports. It's not. Yeah, just it looks sports. good.
1: Yeah. You got James Anderson there, and uh, who else? There's some baseball, athletics, gymnastics, American gymnastics, and, and Jurgen Klopp. That looks good. I think it's difficult for for sports magazines because there is just so much good sport content online. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. just down yeah, to yeah. watching clips. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's there's so many brilliant Twitter accounts if you like football or. I imagine it's the same for rugby and cricket and 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 the other sports. But that looks good. I definitely I'm gonna buy that and take that away. This is a fanzine. It says a football magazine. But it's it's um, uh,
0: turnstiles. It
1: it looks good. It looks a little bit like kind of football culture and fashion. They've got a picture there. Who is that? Is that? That's Les (laughs) Seely. And he looks like he's got Coventry shorts on and a Ticini logo on his green jumper. And it's basically like you know, the the darker corners of, of football hipsterism, but that's turnstiles. But I went straight to pick it up. It looks really good. It, you know, it looks... The cover looks authentic. On football, this is a magazine I know. I picked this up when I was talking up in Scotland a couple this of years is, uh, ago. This is Nutmeg from Scotland. Yeah, Nutmeg, the f- Scottish football periodical. My memory of this was it just had really good football writing. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and I remember, I think I met one of the editors and I was... What always is impresses me is that these magazines exist. This has got, this is its twenty-fourth issue, and it's it's hard producing magazines. It's hard selling them. And I think the way to do it is to have really, really good content and to have a really good relationship with your audience through social media. That's mm-hmm. that's the key to it. And um,
0: and I think they, they, what they're concentrating on is exactly what you're describing: selling direct to customers. Yeah. Um, by mail and that's that's the majority of their sales are are online and then they're in one or two shops across the country
1: I did wonder was it the same one that I'd read two years ago but it's not but that's the style if you're getting it regularly you know they're all going to look the same the next magazine I sometimes see these in um, I've got a friend who's got an off license in Rye a wine shop and he (laughs) has this magazine Noble Rot and I, I follow this on Instagram which is incredibly frustrating because I haven't drank wine for 24 years. But I always, it always catches my eye. I don't know who designs it, but it, it has great covers with illustrations on and it's just um, a really good... look. I mean, I don't want to relapse and start drinking <laughs> yeah. again, but it's... Um, it, it's a good—it's a good advert for for wine drinking.
0: The, the magazine itself is is great fun. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's got good. a lot of humour and a lot of great writing. I think you'll enjoy it.
1: But I also think, for me, that's what defines a good magazine. It should appeal to the expert, you know, the target audience, but it should also be of interest to the passerby. You know, I, I've always kind of thought that should mm-hmm. try and underpin what I've been putting in my mags. And finally, I picked up Rucksack, which I have got a couple of copies up of at home, I think, there's, there's a whole array of modern, cool travel, cycling and kind of off-road mm-hmm. vehicle magazines and I like them. I, I, I usually buy three of them and then they kind of like, then I you know, that's it. They just that's sit at home. Though, yeah. But I think <laughs> I like the look of that. You know, I'm a little bit of an armchair explorer myself and so I like anything that looks like somebody wearing really good Scandinavian clothing, and, and mm-hmm. uh, up halfway up a mountain, or, or, or on a push bike in a beautiful shot with the Yorkshire Dales. <laughs> Anything that looks slightly wetter than where I am at home, but rugged and interesting. I, I love all those sorts of magazines. So I, I picked this up because it's got a it's got a great cover there. It's got a, an embossed yeah, logo yeah. rucksack off a, what looks like a, a Land Rover blaring out of a snowstorm with its headlights. So that I would buy that. I wouldn't buy Noble Rot for fear of falling off the wagon, and I'd probably take five or six of these others. will. Well. When we've finished, I'll be buying these. It's
0: a good selection, and, and it's, I'm interested that you know some of them, and some, some are new to you, but you, but you do know them. B- beyond these magazines, sort of smaller independent magazines that we've been looking through yeah. here at MagCulture, do you look at a lot of magazines day to day? I mean, are, are you... Not I, day-to-day, but a, a travel
1: points, we get Match of the Day mm-hmm. magazine at home mm-hmm. for my little boy, Billy, who's eight. And that's actually a really good, I sometimes call it his comic, mm-hmm. and he doesn't know the difference. But I then I stop myself, because in some way it seems a little bit demeaning. But actually, if you've got a young kid who, who, who's keen on football, Match of the Day is a really good, so mm-hmm. that comes... I used to get 14 times and mm-hmm. back from when I used to publish it and and I always liked the uniqueness of that title. I get the square ball, which is a really, really good again. fanzine. Okay. Uh-huh, it's okay. the League United fanzine. Okay. It's been going for absolutely years. But it's so good that I often forget it is a fanzine and it's all independently produced mm-hmm. and I don't think the people that contribute particularly get, get paid or anything. But it's... It's a it's a fantastic display of illustration. It's A5 size. It's really popular. It's won Fanzine of the Year awards and it's um, yes yeah, so I get that. I still instinctively go and look at newsstands. I was in Hull station a couple of months ago, I went to see the petrol boys in Hull, and they <laughs> had the whatever, I guess it's the WH Smiths, and they had they had a really impressive array of football and sports. Titles in quite a small unit there, so that was that was pretty impressive. I miss Vanity Fair being like it was the last under Graydon Carter and uh, dana Brown. I thought, you know, for a long time that was such a brilliant magazine. So I I don't really recognise it now. It looks a little bit like the Lady or something. Um, it, it's
0: not as strong as it was, is
1: it? Unfortunately, it's... it, it just—it's a different. You know, editors, good editors imprint their personality on titles, and they bleed through the pages, and and the same of art directors as well, and and it, and it doesn't really stand out. And but so I do, I do look at, at magazine stands, but I probably do get other ones that come to the house, but I've not been at my house all summer, so <laughs> oh, I get strong words. Okay,
0: okay, the you, do book you know magazine. Strong Words? Yeah, 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 str-
1: yeah. So Strong Words, I read uh, um, every Ed Needham. Yeah, Strong I'm is, sure uh, you've had Ed on here. Yeah, I haven't, but well you should have him because Strong Words is an absolute miracle in publishing because he writes every single mm. review himself. And when he started, I said, "Can I contribute to this?" and he said, "No." And he didn't explain why no. And then he just last month he's asked for contributors at last. I mean, I don't want to be paid to write for an independent magazine. And certainly not for one about books because I read books non-stop, but I think "Strong Words" is is, a, is an absolutely brilliant title, and it's one of those where you do feel you do find yourself buying books as you're going through it, and yet at the same time you sort of feel some of the others you've read the book, mm-hmm. so you mm-hmm. don't you kind of get the best of both worlds. So that usually prompts me to buy two or three books a month, and it's well laid out. And it's I remember Ed when I was on at GQ because. I never looked at FHM when they started, kind of copying it or running into the kind of the the same space that we'd started with Loaded. But when I went to GQ, I thought, "Oh, I can have a look at it now and see if there's anything good." He was the editor then, and it was, you know, really well put together magazine. And it's what I like is when you see an editor flexing their personality and their skill and their brains. And I'm sure you feel the same when you you see a great art director. It's interesting to see. Somebody puts so much of themselves on a page and how they do do things or how they don't do things. And it's, I really enjoy that magazine. Um, so,
0: yeah, kind of, kind of um, working through their decision making and thinking, asking yourself, why did they do it that way? Why, how did it happen that way?
1: What he's very good at is taking, I've not told him this, so hopefully <laughs> he'll listen to the, the podcast. He's very good at taking groups of different books and putting them into a um, a common theme that you may not have originally seen mm-hmm. as being obvious. So, for instance, I think last month he had a special about nightlife or the high life or toffs, you know, and he'll take different books that cover different parts of that, uh, that kind of rough umbrella, and he'll run it as a feature over kind of four to six pages and, and give each of them a full-page review. So that, that's, that's a magazine It comes through the door, and I really enjoy that.
0: We're talking about books. It seems okay. an opportune moment to move on to the, the book in question that's just come out.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, now, any, anyone who's been following the World of Magazine since the mid 90s will have a view about Loaded. Uh, and some of the people listening will remember it as one of the best magazines that they've ever seen. And there will be others who still resent the way it paved the way for kind of the base, of lad
1: bags that followed yeah. it.
0: Um, is that fair?
1: Well, that's a good way of putting it because that is what it did. And what I used to get annoyed about was when it got lumped in mm-hmm. retrospectively with what followed because I wanted, as we were developing Loaded, I had a copy of it. there's a really good book about Rolling Stone,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which has got a lot of spoken word uh, memories from the staff and um, I gave that to one of the other guys who were, you know, as we were coming to launch, uh, I gave that book to Mick and Bunnage, who does the modern toss bucklets now and he said this is what we could be like and I said we're going to be better than that mm-hmm. and that because I knew about Rolling Stone mainly through reading Hunter Thompson um, that's what I wanted Loaded to be like to be kind of culturally relevant because now people think of Rolling Stone as a music mag but for the first 10 years it started purely as a music mag and then with, with other writers, it broadened into, into politics. And as as the kind of uh, social movements developed in, in, in North America in the late 60s and early 70s, the, you know, the anti-Vietnam movement and so on, they just started covering, covering a much broader yeah. thing. And obviously, Loaded was never serious like that. But that diversity of content was something that appealed to me. It wasn't... Those men's magazines that existed, like GQ and Esquire Arena they weren't really what was driving me. It was the idea of having a magazine that could combine my love of football and my love of music and going out and drinking and and humour and com- comedy. And that's what it was. But then, as you said, it paved the way for this wall-to-wall display of girls with no bras, with their hands over their boobs. And, you know, Loaded, by the time I left Loaded, you could have probably put a jam donut on the cover. <laughs> and the sales would have gone up. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because people were buying it for the energy and, and, and the self-deprecation, the identification, the things that we told the readers about, the humour.
0: But, but what, what I think it did, and this, this is why I think so many people remember it fondly, what I think it did was reflect that era in the same way that Rolling Stone reflected the previous era, previous yeah. era that you were discussing. It, it's this, it was essentially the, the, the first half of the 90s, well, the middle of the 90s. uh, Well, it went beyond that. The bands, the art, the...
1: Yeah, that's true, but it went before that because, you know, there's a story that I tell in Animal House that I met Michael Caine when I started the GQ Man of the Year Awards. Um, And the way we interviewed him, it was my deputy Bill Prince's idea. He said, why don't we get a load of old photographs of Caine and just give them to him and record his memories of the photograph. And we went through all of these different pictures and he was really enjoying it because there were pictures he'd never seen. As happens, people take pictures of you, mm-hmm. you never yeah, see sure, them, you just sure. you go on with the event. And he came to the picture of him in the black overcoat from uh, Get Carter and he said, ah, now, my friend called me about a year ago and said, Maurice, there's this new magazine in England and every month it's got loads of pictures of your best films. He said, that magazine was loaded and all, all the kind of GQ people at the shoot turned around and pointed to me and said, that was him. So what I found very easy from the off Loaded was we were able to fill it with images of, of films and footballers and comedians and, uh, and, and icons that had never been covered in magazines because... All the magazines that existed at that time, lifestyle magazines, things like The Face or whatever, they're obsessed with the next new thing. Yeah. So And the cool. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. things that people loved, like for instance, With Nail and I, you know, nostalgia, whether it was nostalgia for seven years before, like With Nail or, or 27 years before, like Get Carter, there was these were the things that that guys I knew talked about. They talk about the Argentinian football shirts from 1978, or we'd have fond memories of, you know, Quadrophenia. And nobody ever wrote about that stuff. So as well as doing new things, we were able to just gather all of these icons and, and, and sort of memories and, and things that we loved into one place. Um, but And add it on to pretty much the late 80s through to 94. Basically, it was a post-Acid House magazine. It understood the importance of clubbing. We were around with the emergence of, of, of televised football, the start of the Premier League, all day drinking. I mean, all these things were like Tinder and, and, to the bonfire of the <laughs> final decade. So, I
0: mean, I mean, you mentioned drinking several times and there's no way you can approach this book without realising or coming to realise very soon that drink and drugs played a massive role in, in the office life of work at the magazine. I don't really want to concentrate on that too much because that's. For the, I want mm. to talk about magazines, but just yep. was, was that just a result of of, of of your your youthful desires to kind of you, you suddenly had money and you were just kind of splurging, or was it just? A, 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 I think it was just bad influence of think, a group. I mean, of people I mean, most of the people
1: I hung out with, most of the people I hung out with and had hung out with for the previous five or six years were taking drugs, and um, you know, for me. 85 to 92. I was a music writer working on sounds and then me and then um, so the sort of people I would be spending a night with would be Sean Ryder or the Cult <laughs> or yeah, you know, people <laughs> whose, whose lives were excessive in terms of the music they made and the you know the cultures that they were they were part of, and uh,
0: perhaps easier to. Uh, uh, adapt the music life in, into that yeah, drug was, life was than ma- like running a, a magazine. And, I and, mean, it
1: was basically, you know, it was... I just think I'd, I'd not been working for about a year and a half before The Loaded came out. I'd left The Enemy in 92. I'd been hanging out with some mates with a band, of smoking a lot of weed. There were just a lot of drugs around at the time, and there was... And I was thinking about it earlier. I never ever thought we'd get arrested or it sort of seemed like you were allowed to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I think culturally, a lot of people were smoking weed, taking ecstasy, taking acid, a lot of people taking heroin, but it wasn't... I think the the common drug use in the 90s was seen as as a social thing, whereas in the 80s, when Britain had been in a less colourful place, it was Mm demonised, and there was obviously cities like Dublin and... And, and Liverpool particularly, in probably areas of London that had terrible, you know, her- mm. heroin situations. So I think that had kind of changed.
0: And I guess it also goes back to what you're saying, about it's the kind of post-acid house era. There, it, drugs had kind of crossed, there had been a watershed moment.
1: Yeah, it wasn't like a tiny minority mm-hmm. of people taking ecstasy. On Saturday nights mm-hmm. in England in particular, and loads of other nights in the world I was in, people were taking ecstasy and not drinking alcohol. They were drinking Lucasade, or they were trying to turn the tap on to drink free water. And then, you know, the emergence of bottled water happened, probably <laughs> driven by that demand of, of nightclubs to say, we're not selling alcohol, we mm-hmm. need to sell water. And um, so I think culturally it was there. And then personally, you know, I was just an addict. So that was that. And I had seen, I had noticed that the bands that have a lot of drugs around them were often quite popular. <laughs> you know, the creation acts and, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, there's a few references in the book to, like Neil Bogart, who had Casablanca Records that did the first big disco hits. There's a really good book called Hitmen by Frederick de Dannen, which is about corruption and payola in America. And he wrote a lot about that Casablanca. And uh, they had their Friday delivery at the board meeting at the end of the week. <laughs> They were finding out, you know, how well the, ch- the the songs were doing in the charts, and they were also getting their big bags of various narcotics. And I remember thinking, that seems like a good way to start the weekend. <laughs> so, but, 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 but what I would say is it never interfered with the magazine. Yeah, okay. Per se, I, I actually looked at obviously a lot of the magazines when I was researching the book, and near the end of it, I can see things where I'm thinking, why did I put that in? Or it looks tight. It looks overworked, and it could have done, you know, it could have done with a little bit of space. And I think probably if the last two or three months, if I'd had less going into my head and more time to actually sit back and say, okay, what can we do that's fresh and new? Mm-hmm. I remember Mick Jones pulling me aside around the time that I wanted to had started to wanted some maybe move, and he said, what's happened to Loaded? It's, it used to be so cool, and now it's got fat darts players in it. And I knew what he meant, you know, but...
0: What, what I'm interested to get to is is, is 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 exactly that, the relationship between the kind of debauchery of the office and and, and doing the work. And I think it's one thing being in a band um, and yeah. being off your head, but it's different. Well, we had subs. If, well, and, and they were sober.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> we had um, Christian Smythe and... Uh, mm-hmm. Jason Barlow and Danny Plunkett and 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 Derek Harbinson and Derek became the next editor after me, and Danny became the features editor. Mm-hmm. And I think Christian ended up editing working on front and editing or co-editing that. So Jason went off to came with me to GQ as a car writer. But so they were really good subs. Mm-hmm. And there was no fucking around in the subs room, as they hadn't been at the NME. The subs room on Loaded was a fun place to be. Not many people went in there because it was where work was going, but I would have a desk in there and uh, Mick Bunnage had his desk in there. So those of us that were doing the headlines uh, and the blurbs would would be in and out of there, but we had four really good subs and uh, and it was fun subbing loaded because it was great to read the content, which was largely, you know, either great interviews or self-deprecating travel-orientated pieces or funny articles about stupid stuff like spending a night working in a kebab shop or testing crisps. And then it was fun trying to outdo each other on the headlines.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, probably the best cover line ever was we sent a guy to Japan with a band to be a roadie and Michael Holden, who was the staff writer, came up with Sushi and the Van Keys. <laughs> so everyone was, as as had been the culture enemy. NME, everybody was trying to outwit each other and... um so that's... And we all worked really hard, you know, we worked... There was nobody staggering around the office throwing up. It was a really fun place to work. The actual putting together of the magazine, because I was encouraged them to, to be experimental and, and, and different in the layouts and, and use of headlines. They knew they could try different things and no, there was never a sense that it was work. So people would be really committed to doing, doing the work... And they were good at what they did, the guys that, that that I put together. So I think we were driven by collective enjoyment of what we did. And the hangovers kind of gave you a a kind of short circuit to your dark humour. You mm-hmm, know, you mm-hmm. got having a hangover often means you cut out any waffle and you just get straight to the point. Nobody was working on cocaine,
0: uh-huh. you know? Yeah, okay. That, yeah, that shuts you up. Yeah, they were well, just... It, or rather, it, rather was, it shuts up the We sense. might have
1: a long... I think it was just that, you know. It was well, it, it was really good balance of of, of creative writing and uh, and disciplined layout and and public, you know, subbing.
0: Mm-hmm. For me, there's sort of two strands through 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 book. One is yes, there's that side, the debauchery and the. The extraordinary stories, and it's well worth a read just for those. But I'll leave that for someone else to to yeah. to, to talk about. I, I'm interested in the other the other strand that runs through it, and that is the making magazines and what yes. you learned and what you developed. And what struck me was how quickly you went from sort of doing fanzine and trying that out, and then yeah surprising yourself how successful that was. Enemy, and look, there's luck, and there was. You were gobby enough to get the gigs or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah. All I was harassing them in the letters' step. pages. <laughs>
1: yeah. I made the enemy hire me. Uh-huh. I got to that point where I knew that if they, they didn't hire me, they'd feel like they were missing out.
0: But step by step, you were learning about making magazines. And, and yeah. that comes through in, in, in the uh
1: I think I was very lucky. I think I had two kind of guys who helped me a lot, which was uh, Tony Stewart, was the editor at Sounds, And he really gave me my, you know, he just said, go for it, do whatever you want, (laughs) write features for me. And I was like about 18 or 19 when he said that, maybe 19 when he said that. And um, I just had a tremendous enthusiasm for music. It was kind of, music was helping me take away from quite a hard situation at home. So I absolutely loved music. There were no job opportunities. I was pretty bright at school. I got about five or six O-levels without doing any revision. But I didn't want to stay at school. And what I'd loved... As a kid was Tiger and Jag comic, which was sort of Sporting Adventures, with which Roy of the Rovers was the most famous strip. And then later I picked, I was a first generation Smash Hits reader. And Smash Hits was originally just a a kind of a colourful version of the enemy with song lyrics. So a lot of the similar writers were writing on it. And there was a kind of clubbiness to it in that you kind of felt like you were friends. And and, and
0: that sense of humour.
1: Yeah, so I, in a way I was brought up on really great magazines. So that comic, and then Smash It and the Enemy, Sounds. And I just noticed that there was a culture in those pages which I recognised myself in and was the opposite of what I was being told to do at school and what I was being told off for doing at school, which was being lippy, funny, arguing... With the teachers about things challenging what was going on and then you'd you'd pick up the enemy and, and and read something and it all the it would it was a, it was like the opposite of everything i was that that school wanted you to be so i was I was aware that I had a big mouth and that I was opinionated and this seemed to be a whole room or paper full of them and then just so it just felt instinctive and um you know, I used to lay the fanzine out myself. I didn't have any layout skills. I didn't have a computer. We It really was cut and paste and letter set. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it was just a, a natural... It just felt a natural home and then... The, I mean, The Enemy was brilliant. It was a brilliant, unique title. The idea that you could just say exactly what you wanted about a record or a band, and that you got to sit down with all of these people, whether they're a young band or a, of a, a music legend whether it was Marvin Gaye or the Monochrome set, or, whatever, what, you know, the, you would find them all in these places talking about music. It, it was just a totally inspiring publication, and, and I just wanted... I knew I couldn't get a job anywhere else. I knew that. When I left school, I didn't know anyone with a job. Everyone was either going to FE college or signing on. It just meant there was this, this one tiny spot of light and possibility that I was aiming for, and that was the NME.
0: But and off the back of that, you got the. I got good you're at. You're in the right place for, for loaded.
1: Yeah, I mean, Alan Lewis uh, is a guy who is less well known than Nick Logan. Um, and I think that's largely because Nick's publications look better than Alan's. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the face, you know, left a better looking corpse and Kerrang did. Uh, you know, but Alan created Kerrang, Nick created Smash Hits. Alan built up sounds and covered punk first and covered a new wave of British heavy metal, Nick built up the enemy. Alan, before that, had launched Black Music. Nick later did Arena. Alan did Loaded. Alan did Vox. Alan did Music. At his funeral last year, there were quite a few kind of experienced magazine people there and it was just actually amazing when you looked at everything that he'd done and he was brilliant at giving young people like myself, Steve Lemack from Six Music, Helen Mead, you know, he was... and and then encouraging me to bring new writers on like Stuart McConey, Andrew Collins, Barbara Ellen. He understood that young people have a fervour and an obsession about music that made magazines, music magazines, just throb and Mm -hmm. pulse with energy and passion. And he was a very good technical editor. He understood that... You could put mainstream people on the cover, and it wouldn't kill the magazine, like we all thought. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, he's put Tupac on the cover! But what he knew was probably that week there might be an extra thousand people who wouldn't have bought the Enemy for years. Oh, we like Tupac. I like their new record. I'll buy that. And then the next week he would put he would. I mean, he made me the features editor when I was twenty-two, which meant I controlled who went on the front of the Enemy and who controlled who went in the features pages. So it was a hugely influential job. And he just, he genuinely just said, what's next? When I go, we're going to put charlatans on the cover.
0: So, so that, that, that was a great learning place He you. was a
1: brilliant guy to learn from, mm-hmm. as, t- as had Tony Stewart be
0: uh-huh. but, but going back to Loaded, so basically, uh, as I recall from the book, IPC just we weren't particularly convinced by it, but we were willing to give you a chance. And
1: well, you, to... you had
0: three months to try and m- pull it off.
1: They'd got me in to be... I'd, I left the NME in a bit of a, a bit kind of slightly put out that they hadn't interviewed me to be the editor when I was about 24, <laughs> when Alan was promoted. So I left after about six months, and then about a year later, they called me and said, come back, in, uh, you're in the final two. And then they didn't give me it again, but they said, do your own mag. So I went off and created this magazine, and I mean, it just took me back to the days of my fanzine of Attack on Bazag, and you've got 120 empty white pages... And you can choose whoever you want to appear in it, content-wise and contributor-wise. And it was just but, but in my a, element.
0: A, 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 well, you were, but a, but for a lot of people, would fall over at that point. But you seized that moment and made something of it. And what what do you think?
1: I think because I'd already been doing it when I did my fanzine. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd done ten issues. It went from selling two hundred to four thousand. There aren't a big boxes of unsold issues. Every one, I would mm-hmm. sell them. I wouldn't start the next one till I'd sold mm-hmm. like 90% of the last one. I'd written it all bar the odd contribution. I designed it all, printed it, folded it, stapled it, sold it, promoted it. So just starting a new magazine didn't strike me as a, a, a challenge at all. It was an opportunity and... There was a sort of a, a sense of frontiersman about the people that I got. You know, I didn't want cynics like I worked with on the anime, and I didn't want the names of people who had been in Blitz and the Face and and, and, and you know, the kind of the names mm-hmm. that you'd see in all the different magazines. I wanted a mainly new people who were fresh and who would like the opportunity. And and then Alan Alan kind of stuck around for the first two or three issues, and he disappeared. But he would say things like, Rolling Stone have got an interview with him, Beavis and Butted, let's buy it. And I'd done the deal five years before for the enemy to have first rights on the Rolling Stone music interviews. So that probably came from that deal. So he, would, he was him who said, you haven't got any girls in it, as we were about to go to press. And we had a legal problem with a spread on Rod Stewart. We'd, we'd reprinted some stories that um, had... had, had law cases, uh, you, know, ba- you know, that Rod had won the cases. We were reprinting them because they sounded funny, but they turned out to be lies. So we had a double-page spread, and we just... Alan said, why don't you put a picture of a girl in it? So we called John Stoddart, who I'd met, and he photographed me and the band I managed for Q, and he gave us this picture of Liz Hurley. And that literally was where the... If those Rod stories hadn't... Mm-hmm. Had, and then we put the pictures of Liz in, and they were huge huge hit and then she became famous about a month later with four weddings so the actual structure of what loaded became it was a mixture of wanting to have a place to write about things i was interested in getting a group of people who, who felt likewise and and then just really just going for it but as i said you know three years in i look at them and they would be like 13 or 14 pe- features in it there'd be 300 pages of editorial, and they were so similar. You know, there wasn't like, oh, let's go to 20 pages of the British Army on location in Belize. Here's a photo story, or, or here's an animation of, you know, you know. It was very, very similar. It became quite formulaic. And as I got older and obviously worked on all sorts of different publications, looking back on it, I wish Alan had just pulled me aside and said, go away for a week. And here's this design person? And that's go and talk to that person. I wish we'd slightly looked at it. But by then I was just like we were just firing towards the sun on a rocket, you know. It was in it was on remote control. But the sales only went down once in in and that was only slightly whilst I was there. And that was when we had a sell-out issue with Joanne Guest. It was a glamour model looking really cool and stylish and like this fashion shoot. And then I followed it with Jimmy White. And it was a really great portrait of Jimmy, who I was a big fan of. And his personality summed up a lot of what we felt was important about Loaded and his ability as well. And there was no snooker on or anything. It was like February or something, I think. So that was the only time the sales dipped a bit, which you would understand. And then the next one continued to climb again.
0: I mean, the book as a whole is a really personal story. It is... I mean you've sort of alluded to it but it is one of sort of burn ultimately burnout and breakdown, isn't it? You yeah
1: just... crash and burn yeah <laughs> but what um, a way a crash <laughs>
0: <yeah>. <laughs> well, we're, 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 we'll leave that for readers yeah, to, yeah. to discover the, to discover the I'm full okay story i okay now though you know? well,
1: yeah. I've been fine oh, for you're like off the 20, wine let alone 25 <laughs> years I've been okay
0: But, but, as I said, the the amazing thing about Loaded is that it really reflected that era. It was a magazine of its time. It was absolutely embedded in that time. And you you look back
1: at a copy now, and it just transports you back to then. It was virgin territory, you know? There was... Nobody was writing about the things that was important to us, other than maybe in a specialist magazine. So it was really easy to put six pages of unique content in a men's lifestyle magazine in having nightclubs. You were
0: aiming a magazine at yourselves?
1: It was totally, it was just, Mm -hmm. I was pitching articles. I was writing for the Sunday Times. I was having a few little bits in Arena. And uh, I think Nick Logan flagged this story up. I took the editor of Arena, a, a piece that I'd found about this new football boot called Blades which was the idea that you had, which loads of boots now have. Mm -hmm. They don't have studs, they have kind of shapes and and blades underneath. And whilst I was researching that, I'd found one that Adidas were developing called a Predator, which became the most expensive, biggest-selling mainstream boot ever. That was probably the first piece ever about it. And um, they put it as like a finger of copy, and the, the picture of the boot was the... We didn't have any pictures of the blades. We had a picture of a prototype Predator. It's the size of a stamp. And Nick said to me, or, or he said it in an interview, then he said it to me, he said, you know, it should be a spread, that. He said, that's why you could do Loaded, wasn't it? I said, yeah. You know, and I was pitching ideas like, you know, like Dennis Leary, Vic and Bob, Jack D. but they weren't nobody wanted to know about these people other than in the music papers where I'd already covered them. There was nowhere to write. Blitz, I think, maybe had closed by then. I'd had mm-hmm. a few little pieces in Blitz, but I wrote a piece about a guy called Mark Mahoney, which was way ahead of its time. He was a tattoo artist that I met on, when I was hanging out in LA the year I developed Loaded. I couldn't, nobody wanted it. Arena didn't want it, mm-hmm. The Blitz didn't want it. But I mean, he, he was like the tattoo artist at the start. And I'm sure now that tattoos have become a big mm-hmm. culture, he's probably a really well-known guy <laughs> now. But then he just had this cool little shop and you'd be sitting in there like Mickey Raw could walk through or something like that. It was mm-hmm. So one of the things that was important at NME was being the first, being right and being the best which was an old Nick Logan thing that passed down. I think mm-hmm. maybe Tony Parsons or Julie Birchall might have said that to me. And that's something I instinctively knew anyway, and it was just in the blood of the enemy. And, and that's, I was trying to write stories about things that were new, that were different, that were going to be great, and there was nowhere to publish them. And it wasn't because of, my ability as a writer, because at the same time I was writing cover stories for the Sunday Times magazine about people like you too or Lenny Kravitz. I was doing big features for them. It was just, there wasn't a place, and, and so I created a place when I got given a chance.
0: It, it's, it's an imaginary circumstance, but do you think if you were launching a, a vehicle for that kind of
1: content now, it would be a website, wouldn't it? Well, or or, or it would be social media? I, I don't think you need it now, because everyone can be their own editor. And it's, um, it's very rare that you find anything in one place on social media that gives you everything you want. There is actually a Twitter feed at the moment by a guy called uh, Michael Warburton, which is just brilliant. He's an actor. And it's just like, I've had a bloke come up to me in the park on Sunday and say, that Twitter feed you retweeted is amazing. My son, who's 21, my eldest son, who doesn't partake in that type of social media, he said, that thing you sent me is great. How does he get all those clips? But aside from somebody like Michael, you are your own editor now on social media. So for beautiful-looking travel, you, you look on Instagram. Or for fantastic architecture, you look on Instagram. For, like, uh, funny football clips, or, or, or you, you look on, on Twitter. If you, if you want comedy or, or, or viral, you've got to look at Reels or TikTok. And the idea of having one person who sits at the head of a staff list in charge of the content in a magazine that comes out, not by the second as social media is, but by the week or the month or the biannually, is quite an archaic idea. So I'm not sure, you know, I would love to edit a magazine again. And for a while, probably about 12 years ago, maybe a decade ago, I used to do covers. I used to draw covers every now and then. I'd either invent a magazine and draw it, and I'd just write the cover lines just for myself. The beauty of print is you've got a generation now who, within that generation, there are people who value print in the same way as people also revalue vinyl now, that it's something tangible. I mean, I love the smell of magazines. I love feeling flicking through it. I like looking at the the architecture, and I'm sure everybody that comes in the shop or buys magazines... You know, direct from from the publishers, feel like that, but the, just the reality of it is, you're not going to walk into W H Smiths anymore and see a queue out of the out, out, out onto the concourse with people with magazines amongst other things in their arms mm-hmm. because we're all looking at our phones and losing our eyesights on on trains. And um, so I don't know where it would fit, and that's why I admire this big pile of independent publishers from Noble Rot and Rucksack food to electronic sound because they're getting on and doing it. And this, I mean, really is, it's a, it's a return to the culture I started from. It's fanzine culture. Mm-hmm. These, I doubt any of these sell 50,000 copies. It'd be brilliant if they do. Maybe there's the electronic sound, but, you know, the, what's important for them is, I guess, the environment to have their, their sponsors in there or whoever they're working economically with, commercially with. But, you know... A bleed ink, maybe. Yeah. Cut me and you'll get black blood. Cool. So
0: one last question. Yeah. Um, just for, for a young editor or wannabe editor listening to this who, who gets what you're saying about, you know, magazines are never going to yeah. be that big mainstream media anymore but loves these magazines, what advice would you give them in terms of getting something going, getting, getting a career going?
1: Well, first of all, for inspiration, I'd buy a book called My Paper Chase, which is Harold Evans, yeah. who anyone young may have studied him at college. He's considered, he was voted the best ever British newspaper editor. I read that in 2013 on a Caribbean island that was sometimes going away in the winter. And it just made me literally want to go home and start a magazine because his love of journalism and, dis, uh, 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 and, and layout and, and what you can do in a publication was just totally inspiring. So I would get that. And he also has another great book called Pictures on a Page, which I actually had when I was on the, the, the Lives Desk on the NME. That would be one thing. And then the other thing would be look for great contributors.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I found so many... in the You know, 10, 12 years ago, I found so many great unpublished writers through Twitter just finding people who could deliver an amazing two-sentence tweet and think, that person can probably write. Maybe they don't even know it yet. So look for good contributors and producing it and understanding that, that just producing a magazine isn't enough. You have to do everything. Also, write out your first 12 covers, whether that covers a period of 12 weeks or three years or 12 years. Just know that you can get to 12 covers. And I think that used to happen a lot in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s when there was a real froth of excitement about launching magazines. They'd do three issues and then you could see on issue four that they were stuck. They didn't <laughs> actually, they hadn't worked out. It was I had a list of 50 people who I'd never read in a magazine article about. I knew that we would never run out of ideas at uh, uh, Loaded because it was just a whole life, my whole life, and all the other readers and writers' lives and passions that we could get down onto the page.
0: Brilliant. Well, thanks very much, James. Thanks, thanks I've for really joining us. really enjoyed
1: that. Thanks, thanks for having me on.
0: After this message, we're off to Vienna to hear from Francesca Gavin. London printers' Park Communications play a key part in the independent publishing scene, helping ambitious magazine makers turn their dreams to reality. ID, the latest Mother Tongue, the launch issue of Soho House magazine are just three current titles in our shop that give a sense of what Park can achieve three very different magazines all beautifully produced but as well as these creative standards park is also fully committed to helping you produce your magazine in the most environmentally friendly and sustainable manner check their website for details search park communications just like mag culture park loves magazines and we're proud to have them sponsor the mag culture podcast From looking back to looking forward, we now meet the editor of Epoch, a big, exciting new launch from Paris and Vienna. Francesca Gavin is one of the founders of the magazine. A British editor, writer and creator based in Vienna, her name has appeared in a ridiculously long list of the best indies. I started by asking her to describe her new magazine.
3: So Epoch is essentially a biannual publication that is aiming to make new dialogues of conversation by looking at history. So drawing from things like anthropology, archaeology, science, aesthetics, art, but instead of it just all being about this is the hot new thing, we're trying to make comparisons and new ideas merge by coming with a contemporary aesthetic point of view and looking at the past. So it's basically picking up where somewhere like the National Geographic left off, but with a much more aesthetic, politically conscious kind of contemporary context point of view.
0: That's a good comparison in the sense that, I mean, that your description might give the impression it's quite a wordy magazine and, the, and there are wordy elements to it, but it's also highly visual in, in the same way perhaps as National Geographic is, is. There's a lot of effort put into the imagery.
3: Very, very much so. I mean, this, that's, it's brim, it's 400 pages brimming in largely 20-page photographic projects by a who's who of the best photographic artists working today, from Jonas Lindstrom to Leo Colombo, we did 12 covers that just highlighted the breadth of work coming out. A lot of people who actually normally work in a fashion context, but there's very little or to know fashion within the magazine, which is kind of amazing. It's like using that kind of sophistication and slickness and professionalism for people to do personal projects. I mean, we're really responding in the first issue also to this theme of ritual, So there's a lot of that coming through too.
0: So is all that material uh, newly commissioned, especially for the magazine, or is some of it archive material?
3: Some of it's archived, but I would say that it's about eighty percent new and made specifically for us, or we're taking things that are existing and recontextualizing it and shaping it. I mean, Leonard Vernet, the creative director and publisher and co-founder of the magazine with me, has an incredible eye in terms of presenting material in a really contemporary way. He was part of Ill Studio before he did this and had a lot of experience working with brands and in a creative context. Um, but yeah, it's very much like. If style magazines grew grew up and got a yeah. little bit less about like this is the the new young thing and here's just like forty pages of this season's clothing and actually kind of used its brain a little bit more, but it's still got a lot of that kind of beautiful, slick, hundreds and hundreds of images,
0: including the opening story, which is a series of quite quite kind of classic use of, of the language of, of uh, magazines in, insofar as there's paired-off images of of, of, an, of of an ancient object or piece of art or paired with a, a modern image?
3: It was put together by the photo editor, Nicholas Poilet and Leonard. and I think they very much thought of it, and we all did, as a kind of visual editor's letter that really states the kind of positioning we're trying to do. So you've got images of you know geological stones next to high technology, you've got ancient Egyptian sculpture next to images of like slick futuristic motorcycles. It's drawing kind of aesthetic points of view in the same way that my editor's letter is kind of stating what our pov is about because why you don't just need words to say i mean that's the joy of magazines and publications at all you you can actually get your point of view and argument across visually as much as in terms of uh, just and
0: that particular story almost reminds me of colors magazine yeah that kind of use of imagery just up boldly a whole page image it might be something quite abstract but it's just visually or color-wise it matches the the opposing image on the other page
3: yeah there's a lot of full page spreads actually full stop a lot of the features really it's very I mean also I mean the the, the production and Paper stock. I mean, we really threw ourselves into it because me and Leonor both are like magazine nerds. So we created our fantasy publication out of all the things I've done. And I have written for almost every single magazine that exists in the past 20 years. Yeah. Um, we really did create our fantasy publication in terms of that. And a lot of that is me coming from more of an art background and Leonor coming from like a skateboarding and graphics background and really wanting to give the artworks and images the space that they deserve to be seen, mm-hmm. you know,
0: Understood in their own right. Well, it certainly has space. We have a thing we do on our Instagram page where, where we highlight any piece that Hans Ulrich Obrist has done, because it, <laughs> it, he's probably the only person I can think of whose byline has appeared in more magazines than your byline.
3: We're in competition. <laughs> yeah.
0: But another case in point: he, he uh, you've got a conversation between him and an archaeologist.
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I mean, I know Hans Ulrich from the work that I do, and obviously we both contributed to many of the same publications. We were telling him about the concept of the publication, and he had this unpublished interview he created with Christodoulos um, Peniatos, with a now-dead but very influential Cypriot archaeologist called Vassos Karagorgiakis. I think I pronounced that completely wrong. Um, but it was kind of wonderful, but he gave I mean... The editing process and putting that together was wild. They presented us with about, I would say, 10 hours of video files that we had to translate and transcribe and transform into an editorial conversation. But I also thought something about that's kind of wonderful, also that it was an unrealized, unfinished project, how Hans Ulrich, it was just a very fitting thing. And also him coming from a kind of populist aesthetic point of view while also being smart. I mean it's my my favorite line that we highlight is publish or perish which I think is one of the uh it's something to live by. Uh
0: yeah and, and and you mentioned it's it's um it was a video uh interview and you have got still stills from that. Mm-hmm. Uh as well which is nice. The, the 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 other piece which naturally kind of caught my eye was the uh, fashion archive in Elise Olsen. Yeah. Which, in a way, kind of again brings sort of represents what you're doing insofar as it's it's taking contemporary uh, media and treating it with the respect that far more ancient pieces might be given.
3: Completely and utterly. I mean, I'm I'm on the advisory board for the Fashion Research Library, so I knew about it from that early. Elise Olson, obviously being a very young magazine maker who started doing Wallet Magazine when she was a teenager, and with a great respect for the ephemera and print material that's emerged around fashion it's never been really given its space but i mean i'm obsessed with archives and libraries for political reasons as well as cultural ones because our digital archives does not do not necessarily mean things last. Yeah, so it was yeah. an incredible opportunity leonard went out himself to oslo to go through this incredible body of publications that she's putting together which which is just really truly fascinating and how to present that and what's so important about archiving and publications was very us. It's a really fitting thing, but also in the same way that we could do libraries based on other kinds of subjects, that meeting of fashion was kind of close to our hearts. And it was also amazing to be able to go through those kind of publications. I mean, it's a it's a, a library that's open to the public now. It's just oh, it okay. after we came out. Yeah. And it's, it's so in Oslo. <laughs> it's in Oslo, which in itself is kind of crazy. <laughs> I mean, we want to keep the magazines international as possible in that sense, too.
0: Do, do you know how many magazines they have?
3: I mean, it's a growing archive. I think they probably have like 9,000 objects, but it's not just magazines. They have magazines, they have invites, they have all the printed ephemera, yeah. they have lookbooks, yeah, yeah. and it's all that kind of, all the kind of forgotten things that often people don't save. And it really emerged out of one person's obsessive archiving. And I think that's also really fascinating. And then at least use that as a starting point mm-hmm. to reach out to other people. But a magazine filled with other magazines is very epoch.
0: <laughs> oh, yes, yes. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, well, it, it ticks all my boxes, that's for sure. Yeah. this some um, lovely kind of collage stills from from the collection, showing exactly that. You know, some quite obscure magazines, some lookbooks, some catalogues from uh, Dior, Watanabe, etc. Obviously, the you know the idea is that this builds into a, 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 a long term series of uh, biannual collections of material. This one this one's themed rituals. Do you know yet what the next one
3: is? I do. And actually, we're really we're thinking about drawing on something like Visionaire in our approach to what we're going to be doing in terms of not necessarily having the same format for every single thing we put out, but actually really playing around with the balance and of text and image, the format of what we do. Um, we're currently our working theme is around metamorphosis coming out of Ritual. So again, uh, the kind of subjects where I can go approach like a variety of incredibly interesting creatives and instead of just talking about their next exhibition, get to ask them wider things about time or philosophy Uh or material or the kind of big fat questions that often get lost when everyone's trying to promote a new show. And I think that's kind of wonderful, being able to... Have a different kind of conversation a slower one a kind of bigger one mm-hmm. so yeah i'm very excited by some of the people for the next issue but we're probably going to be doing i mean obviously the first issue also included flexi disc with laragy and we're going to play around with a lot of the. And, we, and he performed for our french launch so we're looking at playing around with a lot of different kind of media and format in terms of how it comes out, just to keep it constantly fresh, and also out of respect to those kind of invented publications of the past too, as opposed to it just necessarily just being a beautiful, incredibly glossy biennial. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And, and uh, I mean, it's very early days, but do you have a sense how it's working from a business perspective? Is it is it covering its costs, or is?
3: Yes, I mean it certainly did for our first issue, and obviously we're diving into the next one. I think it's very much like most magazines—you're working out a balance between advertising and, um, and in particular from fashion brands in this case, and um, collaborations with brands. But the editorial work that we're doing here is very different from the way that a lot of branded content's done in other publications where you really feel like they're promoting whatever's useful to that brand. Mm-hmm. Here it's much more about something very subtle, something very much intertwined with our approach. Also the ability for us to be able to bring on the kind of photographers that the brands wouldn't normally have access to and then be able to use the content afterwards. So it's a much more collaborative and creative mm-hmm. approach to it, but we certainly had no problem doing the funding for the first issue, so we're diving into number two. So it's very much on a project basis at this stage.
0: Sure. I mean, it's out there in the wild now. It's it's selling. What's the response been like?
3: Insane. I mean, <laughs> we did a, our first launch in Paris and we intend to do other launches, hopefully in Tokyo, Milan and London, maybe New York as well. I've never done a magazine launch where I've had so many people turn up a start because 600 people came, everyone was looking at the magazine, everyone was buying the magazine. We had an unbelievable first like excitement about something fresh because I think actually what we managed to do was really fill in this space that's not currently covered by other publications at this moment in time, which is not a fashion magazine and it's not a style magazine. It's more grown up and at the same time, it's kind of sexy and cool, but in a very contemporary and aware way so um there was huge excitement about it we've had incredible responses also like you know I've been doing this for a while I've got a pretty good address book so I, I think me and Lena between us have done an incredible job of being able to get access to people who would not normally do magazines I mean bluntly People are saying yes to Epoch, who don't say yes to other projects, mm-hmm. and that's that in itself, I think, says everything. That we're getting the kind of artists who don't do interviews, and that's the kind of thing we're looking at for issue
0: H- two at least. Well, that's I mean that's refreshing because I mean, you know, we we see so many magazines and new magazines coming through, and with the with the best one in the world, there's inevitably there's there's a certain pool of people that make themselves available to these magazines, and it's great if you can break out of that pool.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like everything. You're, you're responding to the cultural zeitgeist. And let's be honest, you're also responding to what press releases are coming out and everyone's taking a bite out of that too. Um, but I think also even if you are working with some of the people that are, that are known within, you know, our cultural landscape, it's about getting to do something completely different. So it's more exciting, maybe something more personal, maybe something more about their take, own history or their weirder interests or those kind of things, which I think is always much more interesting, where you get a a different kind of insight as opposed to the you know just very established formats. I mean, you know, I'm a magazine nerd. I've read them all at some point and I've hoarded them all at some point. So it's nice trying to think how to have really good writing and really good visuals and do something different.
0: And 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 d- d- does the fact that you're now involved in epop mean that you will see your name in in fewer other titles or
3: I'm still an editorial slut, so <laughs> I'm sure you'll see my name cool. in many places. But I've I've always been I've always said yes to a little bit too often in general because obviously <laughs> half of my work is also curatorial as well as editorial. So now I'm sure you're gonna still you know I get very tempted by a good interview. And I love doing Financial Times, How to Spend It, for HTSI, I should say. I'm a contributing editor, and I'm sure you'll still see my name popping up elsewhere. But the best things will always be an e-book.
0: Very good. <laughs> okay, well, thanks very much for telling us a bit about the magazine, and good luck with the next issue.
2: Thank you very much.
0: That's all for Episode 32. Thank you to James Brown and Francesca Gabbard for joining us. Uh, If you want to find out more uh, about uh, James's book, it's out now. It's called Animal House. It's published by Quirkus. It's a right old romp through the 90s and and, uh, a lot of poetry as well as magazine craft. Thank you for listening. Um, Subscribe to our email newsletter for a fortnightly update of everything mag culture and more. Thanks again. We'll be back with another episode soon.